0: N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash W-T-F Lock the <laughs> All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucksters? What the ears? What the fuckadelics? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. Welcome to the show. Oh, my God. Good show today. Well, you know, it's sort of like uh, one of those rare bird shows, and uh, I never thought I'd I'd talk to Charlie Kaufman. I never thought I'd I'd, I'd talk, I just never thought it would happen, but uh, today, Charlie Kaufman is going to be on this show. Charlie Kaufman is the uh, writer of uh, Being John Malkovich, Adaptation, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. He directed Synecdoche, New York, and wrote it. Uh, Duke, Duke Johnson is going to be with him. He, uh, he worked on the show Moral, Oral and Community. They worked together co-directing uh, Charlie's script, Anomalisa, which is uh, now in theaters. And I, I tell you, there's, I, I just haven't, I don't, you know, the word genius gets used a lot. It gets thrown around a lot. I don't know if I'm a good judge of, of what a genius is necessarily, or I certainly have, have misused the word myself, but genius in its purest form. I don't even know what that means, but I know I've been in the presence of maybe a couple, maybe a couple geniuses on this show. I, I, will, I will explore this in a moment. I do want to tell you that, uh, again, uh, I'm very excited that so many people are watching my series, Marin, on Netflix. I do have to finish a script. I'm writing the finale of uh, the fourth season of Marin. I got to get that in a lot of stuff to do i got interviews to do this week we got uh, concept meetings for the show got to get that script written so the other guys can sit down with it and me and 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 put it together make it right don't love it i don't love writing uh scripts it's uh, writing in general is a a bit of a chore once i'm in it it's great but it becomes a puzzle when i write i tend to eat a lot of uh brownies uh kit kats i eat cereal whatever's in the fucking house I will clean the house. I will do whatever it takes to avoid actually doing the writing. I'll write, I'll write a bit and then I gotta eat. I gotta work on some stuff. But that's just that's my process. It's a long process. I don't have that kind of time this time. Scripts coming along fine. It's driving me crazy. Point being, thank you again for watching Marin on Netflix or however you watch it. It's nice to know that you do work and people appreciate it. Now let's let's move on to what I was talking about, about genius. Charlie Kaufman is a genius. I've not met many geniuses. I've maybe had two geniuses in this room. Oddly they know each other, and oddly they're both involved in Anomalisa. I think Dan Harmon is also a genius. And it's not it's not necessarily about output, those though both of those guys creatively are are, are completely uh original and and, and, and an amazing sort of like uh, fluidity to their imagination. And imagination, I think, in the, creati- in the creative fields around genius is where you really, you feel it. You know, you, 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 know, you watch something like Community and, and whether you like the show or not, you're like, holy shit, where does this come from? And with someone like Charlie Kaufman, you watch all his movies. The first time that you see Being John Malkovich or adaptation you you're sitting there in the movie theater and you're like where does this come from because it's not it's not like sketch you know sketch can be weird and just be open-ended and and just you know sort of like you know well that was fucking i don't well that was weird am i supposed to understand something no it's sketch you can just do weird shit without a button without a close without any point for complete absurdism Sometimes absurdism is a tremendous crutch. It's a it's a crutch that that people with a good imagination uh can sometimes get away with not having a fluidity of imagination that that seeks meaning. Absurdism is 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 an easy out sometimes. But if you watch something like Being John Malkovich where there is like devices upon devices upon layers upon layers of of visual and and uh, lyrically um written content that that moves through uh, a complete vision it's it's an astounding experience and that's the same with adaptation same you know, on some level uh, eternal sunshine the spotless mind the 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 way that was executed i mean synecdoche new york which is kaufman's uh directorial uh debut and also his his script that was very personal is just mind-bending to the point where you walk out and you are like, "I'm fucking exhausted. I think I missed something. I gotta, I gotta go do that again because you're in the hands of a fucking genius." And this new movie, Anomalisa, is genius for a lot of reasons with um, Duke Johnson, who uh, oversaw and directed and, and brought the animated uh, stop-action stuff. Uh, you know, uh, to life, you know, with Charlie. So this was written as a, as a radio play originally. But they do something with stop action animation that cannot be achieved with real actors. There is a humanity to the movie that is 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 sort of brain bending in its depth. And there are moments in it that are so human because you watch some Kaufman movies and there's obviously a tremendous amount of humanity in them. But sometimes the flights of imagination take you to places where, you know, the landscape is 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 completely surreal. But but with this, with the stop action of Anomalisa, there is a depth of humanity and pathos and 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 humility that that they I don't think it could have been achieved with, um, with real people. They were, they were more real than real people. It's just astounding. But genius, you know, genius. I got a story about a genius. I got a story about a genius. When I was a kid, I heard about this genius. Yeah, you, know, you know Einstein and everybody else, but there was a genius in my family. My father's cousin, Brent, was supposedly a genius. My father would talk about this kid, Brent. He's a genius. He's in Mensa. He was a genius. A lot of expectations on the genius. Like, uh, I, it was like the, the genius in family. It's, it's a horrible uh, position to be put in, to test well and have those expectations. We have a genius in the room. Well, what does the genius do? Is he a, is he a dancing monkey? Well, Brent was this guy I heard about. And when I was a kid, it must have been about 1970, 1971, so I was about eight or nine living in new mexico and brent the genius was traveling across country from jersey where my father uh, grew up and he was going to stop over for the night with his girlfriend and i just kept hearing about like you know i just had this thing in my mind what does a genius do am i going to know that he's a genius is it is it going to be like seeing a a wizard or an alien of some kind the genius and i just remember That the backstory on Brent was like he was a genius, but he kind of dropped out. I mean, this is, you know, the 70s, early 70s. He was working as a grill cook or something. And uh, I guess he was not sharing his genius with the world. But I was fascinated with this guy, a genius that would not use his powers, that refused to use his powers. For good or bad, the genius checked out. He's working in a kitchen. And I remember he came over and he was kind of like quiet and, you know, a little hippie-ish and his girlfriend was kind of hippie-ish and they stayed in, you know, my room down in the basement. We had to sweep upstairs I, I think they smoked some weed and I just like, you know, I didn't, I didn't really get to spend that much time with the genius. I just, I think I just kept looking at him and I was waiting for something, you know, but that was the first time I, you know, I met a genius when Brent came over. And I, I didn't, I, you know, I, it was, it was mystifying in a way and a little disappointing, but I I do have to say that uh, the, the morning he left, uh, you know, he cooked, uh, everyone breakfast and I, and I, and I, you know, I got to tell you to this day, probably the best eggs I ever had. So I, your genius manifests itself in, in different ways and uh you know they weren't even that complicated just scrambled and it just you know genius eggs that's all i'm saying genius but now i'm going to talk to uh to charlie kaufman and i'm going to bring in uh duke johnson towards the end spending a little time with both of them uh, to talk about anomalisa and uh, uh it was a real pleasure so here's uh you get your podcasts. Choi.
2: Do
0: you want to pull that mic into your face? Sure.
2: Oh. Can I turn? Can I turn this down?
0: Sure. The first knob, I think, is you. How's that? Better? That's yeah? That's better, yeah. There was too much of me? It was a little loud. Yeah, I hear that complaint a lot. I, um... I am uh, excited to talk to you, Charlie Kaufman. Thank you. And uh, in later, Duke Johnson is going to chime in, but I wanted to 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 have a conversation about
2: the uh, the earlier Charlie Kaufman. Okay. Do you say Kaufman or Kaufman? Um, I used to say Kaufman. Yeah. But then people didn't understand what I was saying, so I changed it to what they thought it was. I'd spell it. They'd say, <laughs> what, what, what? And then I'd spell it and they'd go, oh, Kaufman. Yeah. So... So you I stuck just say with Kaufman, yeah.
0: You actually changed to accommodate, uh, yeah. Well, there, there's the story of my early life. <laughs> <laughs> we got it. Yeah. We're, done. we're done. All right, Duke, you're in. <laughs> and, um, no, because the the reason that, that I was excited to talk to you, among uh, being a big fan of your work, is that you were always this this almost mythological presence in comedy. In comedy writing that, you know, you always heard about this guy, Charlie Kaufman, because I've been doing it for a while. I have friends that, you know, you've worked with. And then when I was out here, I guess maybe in the eighties that I remember there was this talk of like this mysterious pilot script. Uh, Was it depressed roomies? Was that what it was called? Yeah, nineties.
2: I wasn't out here until 91. So it was 91. Well, it was
0: 93, 94, maybe. Right. So in the mid nineties. Okay. That I heard that there, there's this script. It's the greatest script ever written for a comedy. And it was called depressed roomies, right? That's correct. Yeah. And ha- was that when? D- what happened with that?
2: Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's the other Show story business. of my life. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. And, and what was it about? Because I remember it's, there about, was, it's about depressed roomies. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 They together in a small apartment in right. New York, and they. Um, nothing that's nothing. what it's about that well was it? i mean no there's a story for the first episode they uh was there some
0: weird stage direction wasn't supposed to all be done with an echo or something uh peculiar about no, it i never got a copy a, of it
2: there was a um there was somebody who moved upstairs who had a wooden leg okay. and they were trying to figure out how to get him carpeting <laughs> okay. and one of them had a um a cousin who was in the carpet business and they thought if they could seduce this man yeah then they could um <laughs> they, then they, they could, could get carpeting for free uh right he wasn't gay and neither of them are gay but right. um, it, it worked it actually worked <laughs> <laughs> and he moved in next door and the guy had to go ahead and date him for a while um, uh, we did a stage uh, performance of it to sort of like try to sell it and uh, had a good cast Jay Johnston played the um, right played the guy upstairs and uh, Sarah Silverman played uh, um, uh, a grocery clerk they were in love with and oh exactly. oh you know who else was in it um, Who? Uh, Jennifer Coolidge. Oh, she played geez. the wife of the Carpet Guy. The Carpet Guy was played by a guy whose name I forgot now. And when, was that a reading for studio people? Yeah, I was trying to sort of interest people. And and but did you have a deal, or you didn't have a deal, or it was just something you wrote? At that point, it was something I owned. I had writ- written it as part of a development deal for Disney. Uh-huh. I had a development deal there early on, which. Nothing I did. I, I wrote a bunch of shit for them and nothing got made. So,
0: did you, uh, well, it,
2: it, where do you like, how does it start? Where did it start? Would you, where were you, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Massapequa, Long Island. Okay. And then we moved to Connecticut when I was about 12. So you're East Coast guy. I'm an East Coast guy. And where'd you go to college? I went to Boston University. Me too. I'm sorry. Just had to. <laughs> it's okay. It's your show. Um, I went to Boston University. When did, you, when did you graduate? I didn't. I didn't graduate. I, uh-huh. I transferred to uh-huh. NYU. I was an acting student at Boston University, and I transferred to the film school at NYU after my freshman year. You were an SFA at BU. Is that what it was called? Yeah. I yeah. Yeah, the yeah. School yeah. of Fine Arts. Or yeah. What yeah. were you in?
0: Uh, I was a liberal arts guy. What so, years? Uh, I I I was there from I transferred out out of Curry. So I guess I was there eighty two to eighty seven, maybe.
2: Oh, okay, I was there seventy six.
0: Okay, so you're a little older than me, probably. Uh, that, that would be. Well, yeah, you,
2: you look good unless you, than you know me. unless you you know you just got left back a lot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> was not bright. I was a, motivation problems. I, can, I just couldn't keep up. So you wanted
2: to be an actor initially? Yeah, since since third grade. A childhood fantasy. Well, it wasn't a fantasy. I just I just discovered it in third grade, and um, I was in love with my teacher, who you know who did these plays, and I I got up there and I played a a rooster in a play uh-huh. called The Chirkingdoos, which was I, I basically ran the hen henhouse, uh-huh. and um, I was this blustery kind of asshole, and um, which you know I got a lot of laughs. Yeah, and I was a shy kid, and it was like, holy crap, you know, and this is this it. Was what I want to do, and yeah, that was just like my trajectory. To Boston University, and then I just dropped it. So you acted through high school and everything else. Acted through high school, I did summer stock. I did. You did like, summer stock. I did summer stock at Green Mountain Guild in Vermont. What uh, what big plays were there? I, I was in the children's theater company, so uh-huh. we did children's plays. Uh-huh. I, I did. um there's this guy named David Marshall Grant who uh-huh. was in my company who went on to become an actor and um, did a bunch of stuff on Broadway and. Uh, But other than that, it was nobody really well Uh known. But apparently Meryl Streep was in this company, not when I was there, but years before.
0: So you really put the work in. You did, you know. Yeah, it was my path. I mean, I loved it. I did a lot of community theater. Uh Uh-huh.
2: Yeah. And what, uh, did you you write any plays at that time? Yeah, I wrote plays and I did short movies. I did, you know, I directed these Super 8 films and- when is that film festival?
0: The Charlie Kaufman I don't think they exist
2: anymore. Gone. My parents had a lot of flooding in their house in Connecticut <laughs> yeah. and everything got ruined so. Do
0: you have like are you the are you the only artist in the
2: family? Uh, my my father is is a painter. Um he's an engineer by profession and retired, yeah. but he paints a lot. He uh-huh. has sh- he has shows now. He's in his 80s. What's uh, his style? Um I'm trying to think how you characterize it. I I or, or if there's somebody you could liken it to. Yeah. It's it's um it's pol- it's sort of political mm-hmm. and it's sort of um intense and angry mm-hmm. and funny. Um I would say he's very skilled but his stuff is primitive. Uh-huh. He does he's interested in oh, He likes okay. Basquiat. Basquiat's oh, yeah, sure. his favorite
0: or artist. like Dubuffet or like maybe Yeah, all- yeah, Dubuffet, sure. Sure. So uh so you grew up in an arty household in a way. Yeah, know? my my
2: yeah, my father was kind of ex- eccentric. Yeah.
0: And a and a, and a little lefty definitely. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. There's a lot of, like, uh, in Jewish, too, for yeah. the most part? Yeah, For, for the whole part. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I'm trying to, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm just trying to characterize, because there was a type of um, kind of a Jewish lefty that doesn't quite exist anymore, that I think existed with, with the-
2: Island's socialist summer camp thing? Yeah. This, yeah, it, I, did, I didn't go to socialist summer camp. But I thought camp. your parents, because I had a great
0: aunt who was a communist, and there was a, definitely this, there was a very aggressive and, and very sort of- uh, uh ideologically pointed uh, crew of uh, jews at some time and i, I don't know them. my anymore. parents were liberal but yeah. they
2: weren't that
0: they weren't they all weren't the way that. over yeah, yeah, yeah my yeah, dad yeah.
2: was an engineer and yeah. you know it was kind of like they were definitely left wing they definitely democrats but but i would say more towards the center left sure and what yeah. you, and
0: your mom do is she an artist as well
2: my mom was a social worker she gave that up to raise us and then she went and worked in after we grew up she worked in some offices and good-hearted people they were good, and brothers people. and sisters. I have a sister who's older, Uh-huh. and she's a, she's an artist. Um, really, she was a painter, and she does all sorts of like creative stuff now. I just like knowing that, like a lot of people I talk to, it's 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 nice when
0: you talk to people who are creative that grew up in supportive environments. Most people I have found that I talk to, who have a job in creativity, did have that. Yeah. Were, you know, there was uh, very few people I've talked to that are like you're not gonna. But um, they were always supportive. I imagine they were
2: supportive, and they kept their mouth shut. Apparently, my father has told me recently that he was terrified that I was going to go down the road of wanting to be an actor, and um, not because it was bad, but because he thought it was going to be disastrous. Well, how are you going to make a living? Yeah, and then you know, and then with um, you know, when I went to film school and I graduated, and I didn't, I didn't get a job um, working in anything in entertainment until I was thirty-two. Uh-huh. So there were a lot of years, a lot of. You know, bad jobs, a lot of borrowing money, and they kept their mouths shut. And, you know, I think then they sort of, they were really thrilled and surprised that, that it worked. something out? happened. Yeah. yeah. Which was just kind of luck, you know? What was the first thing? I worked on a show called Get a Life. I what? came out to LA um, trying to get work, um, and I didn't get any work. And then I was heading home. I was living in Minnesota at the time, and I got a, a call to meet with this guy named David Merkin. And... um and I was packed, and he, he, he said, um, don't leave. Um, I was going to go home to Minnesota. I had been offered a job working on a show that Fred Willard was doing there, which was some sort of, like, cable access, candid camera show. And I thought, well, it's a writing job. He's you know, funny. I've never had a writing job. Yeah. But, I mean, had I done that, had I left, it, that would have been it. Yeah. I would have been in, you know, you would have missed middle your... management and in, in Minnesota now. How did so. you
0: end up in Minnesota?
2: Uh, we moved... Um, My girlfriend and I, who's now my wife, moved to Wisconsin. I'd given up trying. I was moving to study neurophysiology at UW, and that didn't happen. And then we couldn't get work there. So after a year, we moved to Minneapolis, where I just had a bunch of shit jobs for four and a half years. And then I decided, well, I'll try to get in TV, which isn't really what I wanted to do. But I kind of saw there was a path. You write a spec script. You know, you don't really have to have any experience. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a a bunch of specs. I got sort of an agent to... I guess what they call hip pocket me, Mm -hmm. and that was all. I was hip
0: pocketed most of my career.
2: Yeah, Yeah. and and then you know he said you have to move out, so I moved out um, with like by nineteen forty five Jetta, which was completely rusted out because it's from Minnesota, Um, and like I was out here for like three months during hiring season, and then and then as I was leaving, I got this offer. So I worked on that show with With Chris Elliott, Chris, and with Adam Resnick, and um, who I've had in here both of them. Yeah, I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I heard that Adam did your show. I didn't know Chris did it. And who else was on that? Adam is intense, man. Yeah. And that yeah. was a great show. People loved that show. I loved that show. It was like I couldn't b- believe my luck that that yeah. was the show I was going to get. Um, and then it was all downhill after that. I mean, that show got canceled. I was on a bunch of shit shows um, for were seven and a half though, years. You were staff,
0: though, for a few, a few things, Yeah, right? I worked
2: in set for like seven years in TV. Well, uh, what, let me just ask
0: you real quick. I, because it's So, you know, after you went to NYU film school. Yeah graduated and then you kicked around in new york for a few years yes and then you know at some point when you'd hit some sort of bottom you decided neurophysiology was the path
2: yes i thought <laughs> fuck this i'm going to do something that's sort of that's that's sort of like important and uh-huh. that's fascinating and I kind of, they screwed me when I got there. I was supposed to be sort of like a non-matriculating student, uh-huh. and I couldn't, I, because of that, I was the last person to be able to register for courses. I had to do a whole bunch of undergraduate stuff before I could get into a graduate program because I have a BFA, which right, I don't have any any basics, credits. Right. Yeah, So, um, but I was closed out of every course I needed to take um, because the matriculating students got there first, and then I just like... So then I just gave up. And then I worked in a Christian bakery. Christian that was the job? bakery? I, I, the job I could get. Yeah, I worked in a... What? It was Livin' Bread, it was called. And um, what, what makes it Christian? They played Christian music, <laughs> oh, and it was called Livin' Bread. And the, I, I guess the idea... I don't know. There was, I, but there was I, no They were cross, Christians. Right, I mean, but Christians. No, the cupcakes weren't Jesus cupcakes. They were... No, you know, no, they, but they were like... I don't. There was a sort of a sense of it was like it wasn't like right wing Christian. It was more right, like right. hippie Christian. Oh, okay, okay. But they play Christian music. Sure. And, and and the the weird thing is, my wife, who is not Jewish, got a job at a Chabad house, um, <laughs> doing, doing child care. Child like she right? she had a teaching certificate, so she was working with little kids. And yeah. so we we had those sort of weird jobs. Um, and then we left. So the they get a life.
0: I, I imagine that that being your first job, there was a, a certain amount of creative freedom that you, you that you, after that closed down, I mean, I imagine entering writing for just
2: shit television was kind of diminishing and horrible. I was still making more money on these jobs than I had ever made before. Right. Just entry level, going and get a life. I mean, I, I was making $5 an hour um, working at an art museum in Minnesota right before I got this job.
0: After the Christian Bakery.
2: Uh, right. I, I, while in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I actually left that job to come out here. And, and, you know, I mean, it wasn't freedom on Get a Life because I was terrified. I was, I was, I, I couldn't open my mouth for like the first six weeks there. I could not say anything in the room. In the room uh-huh. And I just thought I was going to get fired every day. But the
0: tone of that, but you know, the way Chris Elliott's sense of humor works and the way Adam Resnick too,
2: that they, they do push the boundary and they do... Yeah. And, and no, I love I love the ideas on the show. Right. And I loved writing the scripts, but I was terrified. Right. I was really shy. And, and how long did it
0: take you to to move through that? Were you able to move through it during that uh, job, or did that happen I mean, later? what
2: happened was I got a script assignment, and it came out okay. Uh, yeah. And it was a relief, and then <laughs> I felt more confident.
0: And then, like, these other jobs, like The Edge and yeah. uh, uh, The Trouble with Larry, that these were job jobs, right, on some well, level? Well, some
2: of them were just horrible shows. I mean, The Trouble <laughs> with Larry was a, um, Bronson Pinchot right. and, and What's Her Face um, – from friends mm-hmm. Courtney Cox and um, yeah it was just like it was a terrible show and it didn't even I don't I think it maybe it aired once you know, right yeah so <laughs> and that was it that was it it yeah. was sort of one of those reliefs yet well I'm not gonna make
0: money but oh thank god that didn't go on for 10 years
2: uh no it wasn't yeah I guess so I yeah. guess so yeah I, I don't know what the relief was I just like getting paid um, and you know, and the, and the, and the, when I, when the shows were canceled, I would write screenplays and hope that I could, you know, interest somebody in hiring me for assignment work.
0: Right. That's and what I did, well, I'm just trying to track there's some moment where you know, I'm assuming, yeah, you know, cause I knew, uh, you know, I was friends with Louie when the Dana Carvey show happened. Those guys that came out of, uh, Conan, that yeah. group of writers, I guess it was Smigel and Dino and Louie and who, and who else was on that, the Dana Carvey show. With uh, Robert
2: Carlock, who, who who works with Tina Fey, who did Thirty Rock and uh-huh. um, Kimmy Schmidt and um, John Glazer, right? John, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Of course, Carell and Colbert, right? Were both on the show. <laughs> there was like a good I, group I, of people. I just
0: remember, you know, talking to Louis, and I remember Louis having Louie having that opportunity. Was he the head writer? or Was Smigel? he was the head writer and Louis? You know, and and Robert Smigel was like the executive producer. There was like because I just remember there was a bit. And you know I don't I don't know who was responsible for it. Where where you know Clinton came out with all the nipples.
2: It was either Smigel, yeah, or Louis or Dino. Right. Nobody else got anything on that show. Oh really? <laughs> so Wait. that would, yeah. I mean, well, you know, like um, Colbert and Carell kind of did stuff that they'd done at Second City. You know, yeah. bits that they did like sure. the great waiters who who were nauseous, that kind of thing. But right. I mean, in terms of like writer writers. Uh, it was there was no, no group think on it either? You, 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 you couldn't get anything on. I mean, it was disastrous for me. I, I really, it was really uh, a really frustrating experience because I moved to New York to do it. They kind of, you know, they met with me and they really wanted me. And Based on what? Uh, based on s- my sketch packet from The Edge. Yeah. I wasn't anybody at the time. I mean, I wasn't, you know, I was really flattered that they wanted me. Um, but I wasn't in that group. Right. Um, I couldn't get on The Simpsons. I couldn't get on Seinfeld. I couldn't get on any show that I, I thought might be fun. And you uh, tried. I tried, yeah. I tried, I tried to get on Larry Sanders. Um, I couldn't get on that show. Why do you think which that Adam w- worked on. Right. You know, um, Why do you think I that was? I assumed because I sucked. Really? I don't know. Well, I don't know. I yeah. mean, I don't know. I just like... I, I was really frustrated. Maybe I wasn't, maybe I wasn't, I well, for like Simpsons, I didn't even get a meeting. So it wasn't like how I was in the room. I don't know. Cause I thought like in, in you know, mistakenly,
0: obviously it was obviously the first time you worked with Dino, who you still have a relationship with. Yeah. And because of the, the new film that, that, that would have been the moment where, because when I look at being John Malkovich or adaptation or any of your movies, the imagination engaged and, and, and the possibilities you create with, with writing and and, and ultimately with uh, with film, is is I, I've never seen it before, and I don't think anyone has. And I think that you know the respect and credit you get for being one of the most imaginative writers out there is is you know obviously deserved. So here I am in my mind, I'm like, well, it must have been some comedy event must have happened where your brain just broke open and gave you the freedom to do that kind of stuff.
2: No. <laughs> No, I just was writing and I I was trying to write something, trying to write something that I thought was funny. When I wrote, being John Malkovich was the first um, spec script I wrote, and I was, you know, I was I wasn't expecting anyone to make it, but I thought I'll write this, and if it's funny, then maybe I'll get, you know, polish work or something. Really? Yeah. And you know, for a while, nobody. I mean, people liked it. It got kind of a reputation, like depressed roomies, but everyone said it would never get made. Um, Mm Hmm. Also, Odenkirk and Cross were, were worked on uh, Carvey for a while too. So oh, right, right. I also right. knew them, um, and didn't get on Mister Show. Oh, really? <laughs> no, that's a, I. I yeah. You know, now I'm, I I like you more than I did before. Well, good. <laughs> I've got a lot of sad sack stories. So, what was the story of being John Malkovich? Well, How did that get made? Um, Spike Jones read it, and Spike at the time was you know famous, and he he wanted to make it, and he had a relationship with Steve Golan at Propaganda and steve supported it and 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 i made under sort of under the radar for like eight million maybe which is what our movie cost and
0: it's just like in and when you like i i guess these are hard questions to answer because i don't know you know when you follow the rules of sitcom even when you're breaking them there's a format there there's a three-act structure usually there's you know there's a way to write that shit right Mm -hmm. yeah and it just seemed that with john malkovich obviously you know you know there's a there's an act structure on some level but when you are, are, are you know, creating this story of being inside John Malkovich and having these different environments and these, I mean, the way you visualized it, how, how do you write that? Were you just sort of like fucking around in a way or did you see it as a full picture from the
2: beginning? I mean, I figured it out as I went along. Right. I, I didn't know where it was going. and And the third act or for whatever, whatever that is, was very different in the original script. Um, but Spike didn't want to do that. But do you act. work with a storyboard? Do you do, No, th- no. Right. I just write and I, and I find things as I go. And More I like think, a oh, novelist. I think, yeah, definitely right. what I try to do with everything I, I write. And, you know, that's funny. I like that. That's funny. And I don't care. Right. You know, I'm going to do this isn't for anybody. It's not a, an assignment. I'm going to do what I think is funny and then, you know, see what happens. And so, and, and Spike got it. Yes, I got it, yeah.
0: And how close did you work with him during the very filming? Very
2: close, yeah. He was, he was great and very collaborative and very respectful and um, I was fortunate because uh-huh. it's not the experience that most writers have. Where did
0: Human Nature come from?
2: Human Nature was the second script I wrote. It was just another spec script I wrote and um, it had like this sort of weird history of people being interested in it. Steven Soderbergh was going to do it mm-hmm. and um, it was after he had left Hollywood and made Schizopolis and he... I came upon it and he wanted to make it and I started meeting with him and then um, out of sight got offered to him or something and he just out yeah. the door. <laughs> right. So, um, And then what happened was I went out and pitched this idea for Eternal Sunshine with Michelle Gondry and um, I had to write something else first. I don't remember what. Was it Confessions? Maybe. I can't remember, but I had to write something else, and Michelle didn't want to wait. He wanted to do a movie, Um, and he said, can I do Human Nature? And I said, well, okay, you know, and so he did Human Nature, and-
0: um, What was your experience working with him? Because I think he became a better director after that.
2: I I think Michelle's really smart and really talented, and- you know, I I was a producer on that movie. Spike was a producer on that as well. And you know, Spike introduced me to Michelle, saying uh, Michelle is my favorite director. Mm-hmm. And I and I, I I I can see that. I I I really like Michelle. I think he's great. I think that uh, I don't know. Um, uh, he we gave him freedom. The yeah. idea was let let Michelle make the movie he wants to make. And uh-huh. I I think there are really good things in that movie. And um, you know, I did, it didn't do very well, and it hurt everybody. You yeah, hurt Michelle, it hurt. I guess it, career or, wise you know,
0: or just personally your heart.
2: <laughs> no, it didn't hurt my heart that much actually, uh-huh. but you know, y- you know, it was after Malkovich. So you're sort of kind right. of like expecting yeah, yeah, something. Yeah. And Next just, big thing, you know? So, yeah. um, yeah. So that happened. And,
0: and then adaptation happened, which is a fucking masterpiece.
2: Yeah, that was, uh, I was offered the job of writing an adaptation of the orchid thief and, uh, by Jonathan Demme and, and, and Ed Saxon. And, uh, couldn't figure out how to do it. And I think that's what I was writing at the time because Uh I remember Spike was shooting Malkovich and I was just wake up every morning with this intense depression. Like I cannot (laughs) fucking face this again. I can't (laughs) face it again. I can't face it again. The adaptation. Adaptation, because I didn't know how to do it. I had the idea, it's pretty close to what's in the movie. I had the idea, I'm just going to write this movie about orchids with no story. Right. And I (laughs) I didn't know what that meant, Uh, but I figured I'd figure it out and I didn't. And then I thought, Oh, well, what if I, what am I thinking about now? Let me write about the thing that I'm most fascinated with now. And the thing that I was most fascinated now was with being stuck uh-huh. with my own problems. So I thought, well, what if I write about me being stuck? And I remember telling Spike, I remember going to the set where they were shooting the, um, what do you call it, the swamp scene. Yeah. I remember telling Spike about it, and he said, yeah, you should definitely do that. And I think that kind of gave me the courage to go ahead and do it. Uh huh. Because I didn't tell them that I was doing it because I was terrified they'd say, no, you yeah. can't do that. Right, and right. I had nothing else. Yeah. So I wrote it, and then I turned it in without telling them. I turned it in with my name and the name of my brother on the script, and they were really pissed off because they thought I had sort of farmed out the script to this other person, and it wasn't what they signed up for. But then they liked it, and, um, and then... Jonathan decided not to, to direct it, and um, Spike asked, asked if he could. And
0: Thank God. Yeah. I mean, I like Jonathan yeah. Demi's movies a lot, but I can't imagine that movie not being directed by Spike. Yeah. And so, like, so that was,
2: was that as autobiographical as you've gotten in any form? I mean, everything is autobiographical to, okay. to, to a greater or lesser extent. I mean, uh-huh. that one's sort of more literally autobiographical. I and mean, this, I really was stuck. I really did have a meeting with that executive that went almost like that scene that with uh, Tilda, with Tilda Swinton and, oh, okay. and Nick Page. And yeah. Um
0: and what about the other executive? Wasn't there another agent in there uh, who played by that uh, good looking guy? Oh, what's his name?
2: Oh yeah, that's my that was my agent. That's yeah. that's Marty Bowen. Oh, okay. uh, at UTA, yeah. And who, who played oh, um, him again? Ron Livingston. Yeah, played him, great. Yeah. 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 He was great. <laughs> Yeah. Marty said stuff like that to me. (laughs) I love Marty. Marty is like the polar opposite of me as a human being, but he really gets my stuff. And Mm -hmm. he's been so supportive over the years. And he's like always the person who laughs the most when at the first screenings. Right. I I, I love him for that. Great. Yeah. So the device of a twin brother, though, was that your just a a, did you was that sort of the, the other voice in your head? No, it was more like, okay. How interesting is it to have a writer sitting alone in a room typing? Right. Well, what if there's somebody else he could talk to? And then then it kind of developed into what it developed. I thought it was funny. I thought it was funny that the brother had back problems and was always lying on the floor in the house. (laughs) 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 Um, It was great. Nick Cage was great. He was great. And was Spike as collaborative on that one as the other one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Spike's great to work with. And Michelle is as well. Yeah. Yeah, I I like them both. When you were
0: sort of developing your sensibilities, I mean, who were you a fan of? Who were your guys when you were growing up in terms of comedy?
2: Woody Allen. Yeah. uh, Monty Python. Yeah. um, National Lampoon. Right. The magazine
0: uh, or the radio show, all of it? The magazine and the radio
2: show. um, Early SNL. I Mm -hmm. mean, just anything that felt sort of anarchic. Mm -hmm. uh, The Marx Brothers. Ernie Kovacs? I didn't really learn about Ernie Kovacs until I was older. But yeah, yeah he's neither. amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, things weren't me. available right, you know? as easily. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. So Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, were you hired to that was you you were hired to do that? I was
2: hired to adapt that. I yeah. thought it was kind of I mean I was asked to adapt it, and it was interesting to me because I thought this guy is lying but he's not he's acting like he's not lying and I thought that was interesting as a character study. So, right. I thought
0: so, it was a good movie. Did uh, you like it? No, no,
2: <laughs> no. I didn't like it. That wasn't. That was a movie in which I was not um, consulted. I mean, George Clooney changed the script. He didn't talk to me during production. We kind of didn't get off. Now, when that happens to right you,
0: do you ang- are you angry? I mean, do you you know do you defend your work? On I try to. Yeah. yeah. I
2: mean, he actually showed me. Um, I was I was invited to see the movie after he was pretty much done. Yeah. Um, and I, I wrote a bunch of notes. I took a bunch of notes and gave them to him and Mm -hmm. I guess it was offensive to him. So he, um, shut you out. Well, the movie was already done, but it's like, well, you're asking me my opinion and you know, this is what I think. And so
0: did you, did you have words?
2: Um, there were, there were words. There were a lot of words during that were in the form of emails. Mm hmm which I kind of wished I saved because some of them were kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, some of your best writing? No, some from of him? his most interesting writing.
0: <laughs> How could you not save them? They've got to be out I can't
2: there. believe I didn't. I can't believe it because it was an astounding experience for They're me. They're not out there. Hire some guy. they got to be able to find them.
0: Uh, I don't even you, know. Yeah. just There's yeah. guys. They can track them. Whatever email accounts. <laughs> They're out there. Uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless, uh, Spotless Mind was a beautiful movie. Thank you. Do, are you happy with the way that came out?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I'm happy with that, and you know, and Michelle and I worked very closely on that, and that was a good experience.
0: Whose idea was it to to have the landscapes actually dissolving?
2: The landscapes. Dissolving. Well, I mean, like when
0: when when as his memory was going, you know, buildings were falling down. You know, you know, uh, you know. Things oh, you mean are, like in, in 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 Montauk?
2: Yeah, in Montauk, but yeah, it, but as when he was like running, and we had and, a lot of through. conversations about. I mean, that was in the script. To, yeah, to, you know to To a great extent. How it was going to be done was sort of up for grabs, what it was going to look like. It was sort of more fanciful. At first, Um I was trying to push for it to be more realistic. Uh-huh. Um, and then Michelle, who is brilliant at like practical types of things, designed all of these sort of in-camera effects and um, on-set effects that are, are just gorgeous. And, uh, it yeah. did seem
0: realistic, though. It did. I think. It, yeah. Well, did. we were
2: trying for that. We were trying for it not to be like, um, you know, there are some movies that take place in the mind that sort of feel like you're right. You know, it's sort of this magical sort of weirdness, and it doesn't really feel like anything to me. So we were we were working against that,
0: right? Because it, it, there's no rules to it, so it just looks stupid,
2: and it isn't what it looks like in your brain, right? You know.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, I, they it, don't
2: have things floating around in your brain when you think of things, you know?
0: No, is the, <laughs> it, it is. So you had to really kind of put some thought into that because what, what it looks like, what does it look like when you have a memory? That's it looks I like a, about, yeah. It looks like a picture. It what does like, it
2: look like when you have a memory? What does it sound like when you think? Yeah. I, I've spent years trying to figure that out because it doesn't sound like anything, right. but you hear it. Yeah. And I I I still haven't quite done it with Synecdoche. I I decided there would be no voiceover and everything that he thought would be projected onto the world outside of him. So that's why it's got this sort of dreamlike quality to it, because it's because that's sort of what I was trying for, like in a real dream where things happen and they're metaphorical and they make perfect sense in the dream, but they don't really make rational sense.
0: Yeah. That movie was mind blowing. Like, they, like there was, a, it was a little exhausting in a good way. Good. <laughs> yeah, that's what I go for. <laughs> like when I went to see it, I was like, this is going to be, it was one of those movies and I had this, um, I talked to, who did I talk to recently? Todd Haynes too. Where, you know, I I, I experienced it, I witnessed it, but like I walked out feeling like you know, I'm going to have to go, go back to that one. Like yeah. I, there was no way
2: for me to wrap my brain around it. Well, that's what I wanted. Uh-huh. Yeah, That was my plan. That was my idea. With anything I write, my idea is that you have to watch it a second time to get all of it. Mm-hmm. But I think with Synecdoche, when people didn't like the movie, they weren't interested in watching it again. You know, some people loved the movie and they were interested in watching it again, but the people who didn't it's like well why am I going to go back and watch it again
0: well, my experience with those kind of movies especially in, in, in that one in particular was like you know you're obviously in the hands of somebody who's got a creative vision that he put a lot of time into this is meticulous you know there was in, in, in hearing you say what you said about trying to he, you know figure out how you express the sound of the mind or how right. the mind works that, that I knew I you know I had to reckon with the movie and, and I had to, y- because you put a lot of work into it and, and you're, you're not uh, a slouch. So I'm like, I'm going to go and I'm going to do it again and I'm going to get what I can get. And no one's going to be able to go I like, I, you know what? I understand exactly what you were trying to do because yeah. there was so much in it. But, uh, but I felt satisfied
2: with it as a piece of art. Is that okay? No, it's great. <laughs> and I appreciate it. I think there are a lot of people who don't want to um, do that or they're mad at me or they're mad at, what do you think they're mad at? Oh man, I don't know what people are mad at. They're mad I mean I could sort of you know do a laundry list. But yeah. I, I I don't know. I think people are I don't know what people are mad at. I think that people are like when people were mad at that movie, they were mad that it was bullshit and it was pretentious uh-huh. and um it's self indulgent and oh, that fuck word. you and fuck right. you and fuck yeah. you and fuck you and fuck you. And you know I they're not going to want to watch the movie again, you know. <laughs> so um, they I'm, want they they they. I don't know what they're so mad about. So this was that was your first directing, right? Uh, it was my first, uh, other than stuff I did as a kid, yeah, or in film school. And yeah. it, is
0: that something when you went to NYU film school that you wanted to do?
2: Yeah, I was going to be a director. And how how
0: was the experience for you at NYU? No, well, I mean, oh, well, directing.
2: Yeah, um, I love it. I love it because it's like an antidote to writing, uh-huh. you know. And first, also, I love. Actors and acting, so it's like a great thing for me, but it's like not sitting alone in a room for three years, right? You know, you're You've got all of this stuff going on, and you got to solve things right away. And it's it's exciting, and it's this sort of social environment, which is not easy for me. But it's forced on me, and I have to do it. I have to get over things. I had to think a lot about how I interacted with people. You know, I realized I couldn't be the sullen writer.
0: Yeah, you know, I had yeah because be, everyone's looking to you. You're the captain. It's not.
2: There's no room for it. Right. You no. Know, yeah. You. Yeah. You. You have to take care of people. You have to figure out what people need and take care of it. And and that's a great. Discipline for uh-huh. me, you know, and uh-huh. I loved it.
0: And you had, and you had a clear vision, for the most part. I
2: think I did. Yeah, yeah, I think I did. You
0: knew what you were looking for, and you yeah. had these great actors, and, and you- I had
2: great, I had a great production designer, great cinematographer, and, and great actors. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was like you know, worked with a lot of really good people. Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, of course. Yeah,
0: yeah, and that was uh, how was that experience for you? He's amazing. You yeah. know,
2: he's amazing, and um, he was in virtually every shot of that movie yeah and it was just a marathon for him and it was you know we were shooting up in the top of warehouses it was a heat wave it was 105 degrees he was covered in prosthetics you know that the prosthetics were bubbling oh my god because it was filling with sweat and he had to come in with pins and puncture holes so it could drip out and you know but he was just very serious he was always there and then when you go into editing like and you start piecing it together. I saw things that I never saw. Like he understood who this character was in sequence that made it beautifully nuanced. And, and, you know, really? Yeah. yeah. So in his mind, he he, I don't know what he knew, but I saw he knew something. It was like, this works. It's not like, oh, oh, fuck. There's like tonal shifts. And 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 this doesn't work next to this. It was all like beautiful emotional continuity. Yes. And if, from, from throughout the movie and he held the movie together obviously because he's the thing in that movie he's the that's fascinating because
0: yeah. that's a, like as a guy who's not really an actor but has had to do it you, you know going like having that in your head on top of the scene like wait this happened after before yeah. or uh, this is right after I did that thing and bringing that to the next thing so in in a sense emotionally he probably he, he, he anchored the movie in a way you didn't know was even possible
2: I think so yeah I'd say that definitely he anchored the movie and and I was um and I was surprised by it you know mm-hmm. um by the by the subtlety of it
0: Yeah it's sad he's gone Yeah So now you guys let's let's bring Duke in here because now we're 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 coming towards uh let me make sure I got you on the mic how how do you sound
1: Check check Check
0: check there he is
1: That was great I really enjoyed <laughs> that
0: <laughs> oh, really? whole back and forth <laughs> Now this movie, Anomalisa, which um, I, I have some personal uh, my problems with it are because uh, it was too close. <laughs> as a as a guy who spends time on the road and reckons, I, I'm using that word a lot, deals with <laughs> the 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 type of horrible loneliness that you can't even really explain of of just a hotel room of the the freedom of it and then. Not even knowing why, like when you're in a hotel in another city, especially if it's not near anything, there's this thing sort of like, I'm dead, I'm lost, I don't know how who I am is really what it comes down to. But before we get into the film itself, I didn't realize until uh, until I talked to you at the screening that you had worked on Moral Oral with um, with Dino.
2: Not really. Yeah. I mean, it's not really true. What happened was I had an idea mm-hmm. that I thought might be good for Moral Oral, and I suggested it to Dino, and he liked it, and then he wrote it. And Are you he, and Dino friends? Yeah, we're friends. Oh, good. And and, and and then he gave me credit. I didn't ask for credit, but I saw it on my IMDb that I have story credit there. But is that how
0: you met Duke? Because you do yeah. Moral Oral, right? That's your thing, that you did the animation on it.
1: I did I did one episode of Moral Oral. Just one? Yeah, in the third season, that's, that's what I started doing. I, I'd been friends with Dino- for a long time since back when he lived in New
0: York so and you're like still alive years. and that's great I know can you, <laughs> you apparently don't try to keep up with Dino <laughs> well, nobody can keep up with Dino <laughs> that's right but you started where because you're uh, you do a very specific type of animation well, yeah, I, I kind of
1: just fell into it, actually, because that's what Dino does.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, He's I, got, it's, it's something, there's something nostalgic and retro about stop action animation, right? Yeah. And definitely. there's, and like, they're, like I noticed, like, with Moral Oral, it if you're of a certain age, it triggers something very odd from your childhood.
1: Well, that's right. kind of a specific reference to Davey and Goliath. Right, right. Yeah. I don't
0: know, Davey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there? yeah, yeah. And, but uh, w- where did you learn how to do that?
1: Well, uh I I I went to undergraduate film school in New York mm-hmm. at NYU mm-hmm. and then I became friends with Dino in New York and yeah. he, he left for when 9/11 hit and then I moved to LA to go to grad school at AFI and I invited Dino to my thesis film premiere, mm-hmm. my AFI thesis film and yeah. he saw it and he was like, "Hey, do you want to direct an episode of my TV show Moral Laurel?" Yeah. And I was like, "Yeah, I'm just out of film school. I want to direct anything i can obviously and so he said okay it's in the second season if it gets a third season you can direct an episode and so i went to the studio like every day in the afternoon and just hung out with dino and kind of watched the process and So you're not learned. a
0: hands-on animator necessarily. You Well, over the years i
1: sort of i mean i animated one shot in Anomalisa for example. I'm not an animator. Um No. You're a director. I'm a director, yeah. So
0: who do you bring in to do, like, what do you call the specific type of animation that was used in Anomalisa?
1: It's stop motion animation.
0: And that's just what it's called. So those dolls. Well, there's all different, yeah. I mean,
1: there's like, you know, people are very familiar with with claymation. Sure. Which is, you know. Claymation. Which is made out of clay. Yeah. And they sculpt (laughs) clay. Um, And then stop motion is, you know, any variation of an object that exists in real space it can be flat it can be paper cutouts it can be wire things okay and just you know moving them by hand one frame at a time um is stop motion so this is i mean we use this a type of animation called replacement animation where the faces are 3d printed and they're all swapped out oh really yeah
0: the the so they're like little green screens on the faces no
1: no no they're um they're, okay. So you, we had the the maquettes and they yeah. were sculpted and yeah. then they were scanned into the computer. Right. And then the facial expressions. They're it's split at the eyes. Yeah. And then there's brow pieces and a mouth section. The mouths are sculpted for all the different possible phenomes and and, oh, wow. and mouth shapes. Yeah. And then there's like 150 different ones. And then the brows are sculpted as well for all the you know expressions, worried and angry and surprised. Uh-huh. And, and there's about 150 of those. And then those are Printed on a 3D printer, so they're actual physical objects, mm-hmm. and um, they are literally replaced every frame by the animator, you know, live on. So the, as a director,
0: you were like, "We we got to get a guy that does this, this 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 type of animation." And you and how did you find that guy?
1: Well, the animate, I mean, you you find sort of like the fabricators that can do this sort of thing, like you find ZBrush sculptors that can change the faces in the computer and you find somebody who knows how to use a, a 3d printer but the animators stop motion animators are stop motion animators they can do whatever ones you want they, they can mean. make a ball roll across a table or they yeah, can sculpt yeah. something out of clay i mean certainly they have specialties and whatever yeah, but right. i just used the same animators that we had used before and then you know we couldn't get enough animators because they were doing other stuff and then we had to scour the earth you know there's not many of these kind of animators in right. the world so and you, we, and
0: you got a crew together though yeah now charlie how long did you have that script what was that script doing before you got uh, you met uh, duke
2: i had done it as a radio a staged radio play in 2005 was that the intention yes it was written to be that uh-huh. and um with the same actors at royce hall who were those actors again uh, david thewlis jennifer jason lee and tom noonan mm-hmm. and um we had a foley artist on stage and we had carter burwell Conducting his music with maybe seven or eight musicians, and that was the thing. The actors were reading, and the idea was that the imagery would be created in the minds of the audience. That was the conceit. That's what it was designed to do. We did two performances of it, two thousand and five, and it was over. Um, I wasn't going to do anything with it. It wasn't a movie. It wasn't anything else. And uh, but Dino happened to be in the audience and do that. Well, he didn't happen to be. He came to see it. Yeah. And um, and Dan Harmon as well. And they and Dino really liked it. And I. Eventually, gave him a copy of the script, and then he had this animation studio called Starburns, and they approached me in 2011 to do it. And
0: so they said, well, "We want to do this as, as an, an animation," which is what they do.
2: You yeah. know, they do animations. Right. And I said, "Well, okay, if you can raise the money, you know, you I wasn't have... I wasn't expecting them to." It's so. it's it's interesting as to me because like you know,
0: as a fan of your work and and Dinos and everybody's involved. Dan's a genius, and you did a great job as well. First time nice. meeting you. Is that um, somehow or another, it's it's the most um, human work that 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 any of you guys have done in a way. That the the story, you know, when people ask me what it's about, I'm like, it's about a night out of town, <laughs> a guy hooks up with a girl. That's what it's about. But somehow or another, the emotions conveyed with the animation and with a script that you didn't intend to be shot is really the most e- e- compact, Compactly human experience script that, that I've seen you do in a way. Is that possible because it was so stripped down that it was it was very simple, but the emotions were were profound and very and, and were allowed to to sort
2: of settle in a way that I've never I've never experienced in movies, really. Well, I mean, my initial challenge was to pre- create this um, on stage with just voices. So uh, by necessity, it was stripped down because mm-hmm. that's what I was right, doing. You know, It was a radio play. Um, And that's what we brought to this. So it's different than a screenplay that I would write, which would have a lot of scenes and a lot of characters. Right. And this was kind of a simplified thing. Um, But it had to work as the radio play, so I tried to make it work as that, and I think we just that carried over to the work we did on, on this visually. Well,
0: what was the inspiration, Charlie? Where did this, where did, uh, even as a radio play, so you decide you're gonna write a radio play or you wrote the script first? What, I was you I was
2: doing uh, radio plays. Uh, I wrote one, the Coens wrote one, Carter did the music and we, we did them in New York and in England in London. And then I wanted to go to Los Angeles and the Coens couldn't. So I had to write a second play, so I wrote Anomalisa. I was trying to figure out a way to use three actors. We had very little rehearsal time. Um, and I thought I'd like to use one actor to play many characters because I could do that because it's a radio play. And I liked the idea that people would see it's one actor doing all these voices, which was Tom Noonan. And, so you uh, were
0: challenging yourself
2: to, to, trying, to, to, with the form. I'm trying to use the form. I'm right. always trying to use the form. Right. right. Always. Right. So that's what I was trying to do here. And it was it, it was exciting for me. And um, I'd read about something called the Frigoli delusion, which is a belief that every other person in the world is... The same person. It's a it's a kind of an organic brain damage syndrome, um, and I thought that was fascinating as a sort of a metaphor mm-hmm. for this character. And because it's voices, I thought I'll do it with voices. Everyone sounds the same, right? And it speaks to disconnection and and inability to see people and loneliness and, and
0: narcissism
2: and and perhaps narcissism. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I try very much not to. Judge the characters I write mm-hmm. you know at least not from the outside unless they judge themselves okay. you know um, when I'm writing Michael I write as I think Michael would think of things you know when I'm writing other in, in this case it's Michael's perspective the whole thing except for the very end um, so I'm writing as Michael and it, if I'm if I'm sort of saying you know well he's a narcissist and uh, that's a bad thing to be you, you know unless he thinks that it shouldn't be there
0: Right. Why judge him? Because it's only going to diminish well, it's not, your ability. It's like, to...
2: it's like, it goes back to to when I wanted to be an actor. Right. Act, I mean, that's what actors have to do. They have to find the the character. They have to think what the character thinks. They have to understand the world that way. Yeah. And everything I do is always subjective. I Because I don't think there's any other way to see the world. So I try to write from the, the point of view of the characters that I'm writing from. So per, perhaps he's a narcissist. That's not for me to say, I guess is what I'm saying. Right. He's caused a lot of damage yes. in this world you know and will continue to do so um
0: in a very specific and intimate way yeah 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 he's not hitler
2: yeah but uh, I, I read someone the other day say that uh, on twitter that she'd been um anomalised <laughs> oh, and i thought oh my god that's like you know because everyone's been anomalous and yeah. everyone's anomalous
0: yeah that's you know? true sure
2: yeah. And 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 you know,
0: but what what a lot of us don't necessarily think in in the same light as as knowing that this character is completely self involved to the point where he 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 can't tell the difference between himself and others. He just needs to get his needs met at that moment, whatever they may be. Is that y- there is an assumption with that type of character that you know you've done, I don't know about the conscience of, of Michael, but there is a sense that you've done something horribly wrong, but that sort of undermines other people's ability to move through experiences and contextualize them. Do you know what I mean? That that a lot of times you may think like, oh, what did I do to that person? And that person could be like Anomalisa. Yes, exactly. And yes. and that, you know, there is a sort of letting off the hook in that way as an audience. And also there's a certain narcissism in assuming you are this powerful man like Bella's experience. Yeah
2: you know did not it was not all hinging on him but it, it's true and and that is another thing that i think is important to consider is that people have different ways to approach other people's dismissal or other people's hatred or other people's rejection and, and
0: objectification and, and just and w- not even whatever seeing, yeah.
2: you 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 know i i find that i go through periods where you know i'll read stuff that people have written about me and i cannot i cannot take it I, i'm so horrified and hurt and then other times, it's like, well, it's kind of funny. That's yeah. kind of funny. Right. I don't care. Right. And I like myself better the latter way, you know? Right. If I can do that, that's... Healthy emotional growth. Yes. And it, it, it it's not consistent. I mean, it's an emotional peak that goes back to, into into the valley um, immediately. But I mean, mm-hmm. those moments I go, well, that is that is what I'm I'm allowing this person to do this to me. I don't have to. You well,
0: know. I think the reason that happens from my observation is that there's a part of you that is very me. That's you know always going to be hard on myself. That my wiring is to be self-judgmental and assume that I fucked up. Yeah. So if anybody, depending on the day, honors that narrative, I'm like the ah, fuck, yeah. you know, fuck that guy, yeah. you know. But or, on another or day, they're right,
2: they're right. Oh my god, well, they're right. Those they're are right. always yeah. that's
0: always where it yeah. goes. That's why you're so angry. Yeah, is if they hit that one button. Yeah, but somebody like Michael is you know it, it becomes there. It's again I'm going to use the word relentless in whatever cycle he's in because he knows exactly what's happening. And, and, and we had a brief conversation at the screening and both of you sort of chimed in on the decision because when you look at what you write, there's only one departure from a, a very grounded and in human experience narrative and that's that dream sequence. And uh, you, we had discussed briefly the decision that to, you told me that sometimes in using this animation, they cover the face lines where the pieces where you can see where the piece that is the brow and the piece that is the mouth. Uh, you can see where they're inserted that you told me that like a lot of times they take those lines out and you guys choose to leave them in, which I thought had a lot, a lot more meaning. I don't know if when you made that decision that you realized that it did have some poetic meaning to it. That that these parts were, were were could be taken off and then they're taken off during the dream sequence, but also like it has something to do with identity and who we are. In my mind, obviously I'm reading into it, and it'd be if you agree with it, <laughs> that's fine. But I don't know what your intention was.
1: Well, I mean, I think you know the you can see the evidence of it in the fact that those seams and the style of replacement animation became integrated into the story. I mm-hmm. mean, we added those moments where. You know he becomes uh, partially self-aware, or or, you know uh, we show the audience that we're aware that this is happening, Um, and that that came about as we sort of were designing the puppets, and we wanted as as emotional possibility as to go as far in the emotional experience as we could with the range of expressions, and we discovered this style of animation, and then we liked the way that it looked and people do typically paint that stuff out with computers. And, and we didn't, we didn't want to have that sort of, uh, ambiguous, polished, what is this kind of thing? The organic nature of what we were doing and of stop motion in general, we liked the, 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 being able to feel the impact of the animators interacting with these things and, and seeing that they were hand created and and having flaws and having you know cracks right literal fractured you know elements to them um and then uh, yeah immediately that sort of paralleled some of the uh, thematic kind of emotional things that were happening with the characters in the story and we just built off that
0: it was it was astounding to me that that by showing those those um those cracks and, and those faults within the style of animation actually made the the film, which was already pretty fucking human, even more human. Like there's an element of, of like, I guess, uh, you know, French new wave where, where, you know, you, you're made aware that you're watching a movie and that, that, that's sort of almost a play on that because you're dealing with this animated movie that turns out to be more human than most regular movies or non-animated movies. And you're showing the flaws of the animation characters, in their animation which adds to the humanity of the movie I'm now i'm just tripping out
1: well i i mean Does that makes sense yeah I mean when <laughs> I first read the script yeah. what i the first thing that i connected to aside from you know relating to michael's emotional experience was that you know thinking of it in animation and reading that speech that final speech which is didn't change like yeah. he didn't he didn't rewrite it for animation right um it was already existed like this and him Saying what what is it to be human? What is it to be alive? You right. know, what what is it to 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 ache? Um. To me, there was an immediate, you know, connection to the form.
0: Yeah, and and what blew me away, and I and we could talk about it before. You know, and there's a couple other things I want to talk about. That, but the sex scene, because this movie is about a one night stand, on some level, yeah. on a basic pitch, and the sex scene was profoundly disturbing. Not because they were puppets, because it was the most human sex scene I felt could, I, I've ever seen in a movie. In in some weird way, and I don't know what the hell you know you've lived through, Charlie. But in, in,
2: in <laughs> <laughs> no no Isn't in where this, we're going with this. One?
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no no just in the sense that, that for me, you know, being a guy that you know I've been single a long time, and, and I've been a guy who's who's been out on the road, and I'm a guy that has certain emotional needs, and you know whatever I'm, you know, I'm a flawed character. But, but, but the the weird thing to me though, because you wrote this, and, and and I and I, you know, from what I can gather from your life, this is not the life you live. But that just the guy's choice to go down on her first was was very decisive and very fucking weird to me, <laughs> and not in weird in a bad way. Just sort of like that guy, you know, was you, you understood this character because you know to do that. That's not that's not a passive. You, these all this stuff was animated, so these are deliberate script points.
2: That's right. Yeah, <laughs> the puppets weren't improvised. that point. But what what did, what did
0: you struggle with in the in the sex scene as a writer? What were you what when you wrote that? Where like this guy's going to go down on her first on this woman? What that where did that
2: honoring that impulse come from? I'm not sure. I, again, I wrote this in 2005 and. And it was non-visualized, so I I wanted to I think I wanted to have it may be just a kind of a not very interesting answer, but I think I wanted to have something that was clearly suggested that was happening in their conversation, mm-hmm. but was alluded to, but that wasn't really ever specified, and that seemed like a thing that could to blow, do.
0: blossom in someone's mind.
2: Yes, that you know I'm, right. I'm, I'm I'm a little I'm a little shy about that, you know that kind of thing. It's and that's all it was in the play, and then you know I think we we all knew that's what it was, so we we animated that you know and then um and that's how it started that right was what,
0: what, what, what was interesting to me is that for a guy that you know no matter what he wants to do for that other person there's uh, an almost you know pathological disrespect for personal boundaries so you know for <laughs> you know and and to do that in a charming way would be to have him take that action and 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 then you know sort of stand behind it no 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 i'm going to we're going to do this but not in an aggressive way because that's some that's almost like it's it it appears to be selfless right yes all right so that that was me getting passionate about something that i'm not quite understanding why i'm passionate about it but <laughs> but to begin that sex scene like that mm-hmm. was was something i'd never seen before and then to sort of follow through with the sex scene and all its awkwardness and with their bodies and her bodies what she's ashamed of right. and and her own personal flaws was 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 beautiful but painfully human and and I don't want to give away too much because I think people should see the film, and uh, because I've never seen a film like it. Mm-hmm. In in terms of what you've done in in your career, Charlie, what wh- where does this fit in? How do you feel about this thing in terms of accomplishment and creative vision?
2: I, I mean, we had nobody watching over us making this thing. I I loved the experience. It was um, really difficult. You know, we had no money. Uh, many times we didn't think we were going to finish it. But I think the fact that we finished it and we did it outside of any sort of studio system and now people are watching it is, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm enormously proud of it. And yeah, I, I love the movie. I, I watch this movie every once in a while with audiences and I still have reactions to it, which is not common for me when I've seen something a thousand times. Uh-huh. You know? I mean, there are things that I still sort of see that I, that I love, moments that I love, like human moments that I love and mar- I marvel at. And I think I marvel at them more, maybe, because I know that they're puppets and I know that they're inanimate. And um, and,
0: and there's a freedom to that.
2: Well, it's just, uh, I mean, it's the, they're be- this beautifully done. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I don't take credit for the animation. You know, I mean, you know, we were we were there to, to sort of direct it, but these these animators are, they're they're extraordinarily talented and and sensitive.
0: And and Duke, what, how do you, how, how what do you, what are your feelings about it as it enters the world, and people are seeing it? You know, what, how do you feel about the experience of watching it with an audience and what you've done? Do you see uh, flaws in, in what you've done or are you like Charlie and, and are sort of surprised by, you know, the more you learn from watching it?
1: I, yeah, I'm extraordinarily proud. Yeah, uh, I, I did see flaws, you know, I, <laughs> that's but I've always everything that I've ever done or been a part of. I I see the flaws and then over time that sort of goes away. Um, and I think it started to go away earliest on this project than anything else that I've ever worked on because the experience of seeing it with audiences and you can feel that energy of watching something with the audience. You can feel when they're engaged. I mean, I'm, I, I, I've been moved to see that other people are, 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 are having the, the emotional experience that it stays, we kind of hope for.
0: It stays with you that yeah. was what i couldn't get, like that I couldn't get over because i think it profoundly disturbed my girlfriend to the point where she was like that was great but like you know i i don't feel good yeah you, you know and i of course like you know but i'm a guy like i watched uh, you know altman shortcuts and i think it's a celebration of the human spirit uh, you know like i i thought it was a very honest movie and i couldn't shake some of it and i and, and when we're talking about it now i still can't shake the the depth of the type of emotions maybe because you know, I relate to things that are uncomfortable, but um, but, I, I, you, know, I've, you know, I've seen the Revenant and I've seen a lot of the movies that are out for Oscars now and uh, they, they don't stick with me. I mean, I can't get your fucking movie out of my head and I'm not saying that aggressively. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's am- how are other people responding to it? what's the general sen- uh, sense that you're getting?
1: I, you know, the things that you've said, the, the realism of the sex scene and, and some of the authenticity of some of the interactions, I, I think, you know, one thing that I, one major, people ask me a lot, like, what did I learn from this experience? Because yeah. it's my first feature film.
0: You want I me mean, to ask you that like an interviewer? Hey, no. uh, Duke, <laughs> what did you learn from this experience as being, you know, your first uh, experience directing a feature film?
1: Well, I, I, I think the thing for me that works best about the movie is something I learned from Charlie is having kind of extraordinary bravery in some of these moments. Mm -hmm. I think, I think we didn't, we didn't pull away from, you know, we held on some of these really intimate moments, particularly like the sex scene, for example. Uh, And we didn't hold on it for shock value or for a joke or something like that. It's just because this is happening Mm -hmm. to these characters and it's happening right now and it's in the moment and we're going to, get in there and hold there
0: and you have to experience this and you could because you didn't have a, you didn't have to go can we get a clear set we've got nudity <laughs> right you, <laughs> you, right you you had you could hold it as long as you want yeah because there weren't you 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 weren't you didn't have to be codependent with actors who were sitting there naked exactly right oh
1: but it also goes for the other st- it also goes for Michael alone in the hotel room too oh yeah just the the mundanity of that experience and and the loneliness of that moment and staying there
0: yeah it's hard to make that clear because it's not everybody's life but it's something very specific that somebody who travels for a living and we've
2: that, had a lot of people come up to us and say they, they've been in that hotel room
0: yeah um yeah. yeah it's it's a weird thing that i've never seen explored which is that the desolation of a hotel room in a major city it's it's a bizarre phenomenon yeah it is now i know you were uh tweeting today about piracy what what's going on
1: yeah, apparently this is a thing. I guess it happens for every movie now. I, I, I didn't know that because uh, this is, again, my first movie. But um, yeah, you know, the movie got released somehow online, you know, through screeners or something. We're not 100% I sure. I didn't get but a
0: screener. Why didn't I get a screener? Because somebody stole it and put it on Oh, okay. So you didn't send, you didn't send out a, a <laughs> no, ward we screener. Well,
2: uh, what guild are you in? Are you I'm in, in all of them. In? You're in... Well, you should have. I they were sent out. I'm in mean, DGA,
0: uh, uh, SAG, uh, and uh, WGA.
2: Well, we're neither DGA, WGA, or SAG. <laughs> okay. I mean, so. I guess maybe the SAG one. You should have gotten for the SAG. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, damn it. Yeah, we're not up for any awards in those because we did it outside of you know those.
0: I don't yeah. know why I didn't get it. That upsets me. We'll, we'll, get, okay. we'll get you one. You will? Yeah, of course. Okay, good. Or you can just. I want yeah,
2: yeah, online. It's, yeah, it's available it's online.
1: A, but it, nobody should <laughs> nobody should get it online because.
0: Well, like what That's you're saying cool to me for in the house in the house is that you know when you make a, a a movie like this that that the you know the the budget was tight almost non-existent and it was uh, uh, and you and you you went jumped through all the hoops and spent the money to make it that you know a movie at this scale if somebody is chipping away at the possibility for it to earn money, it, it damages the possibility of, of films uh, at this level to be made and also damages the uh, the possibility for you guys to, to get what you worked for. And it uh, ain't right.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's exactly that. I think it just reduces the likelihood that investors will put up money to make a movie like this in the future or that a dis- studio will pick it up and distribute it because if, if nobody makes money off of it, then nobody's going to do that.
0: And then we then we all just have to deal with what uh, what uh, William Friedkin calls spandex movies. Everything will be spandex movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and uh, how did you fund this movie?
1: Well, we started with Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, that's how we got the initial funding. We like Charlie said, we met with him and asked if we could if we could do this, and he said if you can get the money, you can do it. So we went off and tried to find ways to get the money, and Kickstarter was kind of new, and so we tried it out, and we got four hundred grand, and. Uh, somebody else reached out to us a man named Keith Calder Uh of Snoot Films and he said do you need some more money and we were like yeah and then it kind of started like that and then we got it came piecemeal over over the years
0: how long did it take
1: three years from start to finish two years of production every day
0: and how long did it take to shoot a minute of uh, stop action a week a minute per week yeah and people are are just stealing that (laughs) time shame on them Wow. Well, you guys made a great movie. It's a unique movie. There's nothing that has ever existed like it. And it was uh, great talking to you.
2: It's great so talking much. to you, too. Thank you.
0: Go see Anomalisa. It is a profoundly moving movie, if you let it. And I think if you let it, there is a little relief at the end. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTFPod needs. Uh, feel free to watch Marin. All seasons available on Netflix. Oh boy. I'll get I'll play a little guitar.